Mark 13 is where we're going to be again this morning. Mark 13, we're going to continue our study of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Explained that a little bit last week, and in the sermon last week, we laid the groundwork uh, for much of our understanding of Mark chapter 13. Not going to lay all that groundwork again this week. You can certainly find last week's sermon online on our church website, uh, the podcast in podcast form on um, iTunes. And so if you'd like to catch up, you will be able to do that. Uh, I'm not going to go through that all again. I am, however, going to remind us of the interpretive framework that we are working with in our study of Mark 13. And that interpretive framework is this. In Mark 13, Jesus is preparing his disciples for God's judgment on Jerusalem. That would happen in the year 70 AD. Okay, so he's preparing his disciples for God's judgment on Jerusalem, which would happen in the year 70 AD. And as he prepares them for that judgment, he prepares his people of all ages for the final judgment at the end of the age. I'll say that again. I didn't quite follow it how I had it written out here. Uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for God's judgment on Jerusalem, which would happen in the year 70 AD. And as he does, he prepares his people today for the final judgment at the end of the age. So that is the interpretive framework with which we're studying this passage. And again, last week kind of brought out how we arrived at that point uh, in our interpretation of this passage. So there's kind of a dual fulfillment going on here. We see, we see Jesus' words being fulfilled uh, by the year 70 AD and within the generation of the disciples, but then we also see a fuller and more complete fulfillment that sort of takes place at the end of the age, and that kind of plays out really in every generation throughout church history, which will be quite evident uh, in our text this morning. So uh, hopefully that made sense. Uh, we are going to I'll be reading verses 13, excuse me, 9 through 13 together this morning. Uh, Verses 5 through 8, Jesus began uh, the discourse there. He gave two specific instructions to his disciples. The first is, you know, uh, prior to my coming in judgment, do not be led astray by false teachers. Many will come in my name saying, I am Jesus, don't listen to them. And then the other one was, do not be alarmed by cataclysmic world events. Uh, These things must happen. They're the beginning of birth pains. The end is not yet. All of that was last week. He continues now teaching, beginning at verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together before we study it together this morning. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. In a world where truth is so difficult to find and often evasive, we know that we can come to your word and we can find truth. And Father, we do pray that by your word you would give us a firm place to stand this morning. We do pray that by your word you would equip us to serve you better uh, in the world this week. And we do pray uh, that by the same Holy Spirit whom you've promised to speak through your disciples in the hour of persecution, you would speak through me this morning uh, as I preach your word. Father, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus here in verses 9 through 13, he's continuing to instruct his disciples on what to expect before the fall of Jerusalem, and he's continuing to instruct us on what to expect before his coming in judgment at the end of the age. And as we look at these verses together this morning, we're going to see that there's one main point. There are two dire warnings, and there are three encouraging promises given to us in these verses. There is one main point, two dire warnings, three encouraging promises. That will be our outline as we study these verses together. So first, the one main point. Everything else that's said is said in relation to this one main point. What is the one main point? Well, the one main point is this, be ready for persecution. Be ready for persecution. The words or, or phrase which ties this section together is uh, deliver over. And uh, you can see that that word or phrase in verses 9, 11, and 12, okay? Three times Jesus speaks about his disciples being delivered over, right? Verse 9, for they will deliver you over to councils. Verse 11, uh, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. Verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death. So that phrase, deliver over, is, is the phrase which binds this section together, and uh, that phrase is, is one that carries with it the idea of suffering at the hands of others. Now, most of the time this phrase is used in Mark's gospel, it's used in reference to the suffering and death of Jesus. Uh, Mark 9.31 talks about the Son of Man being delivered over into the hands of men who will kill him. Mark 10.33 Jesus tells of himself being delivered over to the chief priests and the Gentiles. Mark 15.1, we're told Jesus was delivered over to Pilate. In Mark 15.10, we're told Jesus was delivered over by the chief priests. And then in Mark 15.15, we're told that Jesus was delivered over to be crucified. So most of the time, this, this word delivered over, it's, it's, it's about Jesus and about the suffering and death of Jesus for us. But here, it's about the disciples. Here, it's the disciples who are going to be delivered over. And this, this reminds us that believers share in Christ's sufferings to some measure. This reminds us that even as he was rejected by the world, so will we who follow him also be rejected by the world. 
In John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Well, in much the same way, the gospel of Mark implies, hey, if the world delivers you over, keep in mind that it delivered your Savior over first, and that for your salvation. Of course, this whole section is prefaced by a command, isn't it? The command stands right at the beginning of verse 9, be on your guard. Okay, those are the first words of our text, be on your guard. Literally in the Greek, it says something like, see, see clearly. It means, it means right, be on your guard. It means, it means be ready to be delivered over. Be, be ready for, for persecution, and certainly Jesus gives us this command because many are not ready, are they? Many are not ready. Too, too many have, have utopian fantasies about what it means to follow Jesus. And, and too many think, you know, if I just give my life to Jesus, then all my problems will go away and, and I'll be healthy and I'll be wealthy and, and life will be easy. Right? And that's the reason people think that is because that's the message of Many in our country, Joel Osteen, Stephen Furtick, among others, they preach this, this prosperity gospel. Follow Jesus and you'll have your best life now. Well, Joel Osteen, I'm pretty sure the Bible says my best life is yet to come, but thank you for the book. I'll leave it on the shelf. <laughs> millions and millions of others haven't thought that. But anyway, that's a message being preached by preachers in our land because right, that message sells and that message fills the churches, right? The message, be ready to suffer, really doesn't fill churches quite as readily and as easily. But that's, that's what Jesus says here. He says, be, be ready. Of course, we might think of what else Jesus says in another place, and it's that, it's that, um, it's that for those who aren't ready, right, when suffering and persecution comes, they, they fall away. You think of the parable of the sower. There are people who are like seed that is sown on rocky places. They hear the word, and at once they receive that word with joy. But Jesus says, since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. These are people who aren't ready. They're not aware. They don't see clearly in their minds the life that Jesus has called them to. And so, so Jesus is clear. We, we must understand what awaits us. As a follower of him, you must understand what awaits you as, as a follower of Jesus. You must understand what faithfulness to Jesus might very well cost. He was delivered over, and you too might very well be delivered over. He was persecuted. Jesus says, you too, you too might very well be persecuted. He was rejected by the world. Jesus says, you too might very well be rejected by the world. And Jesus is clear, you, you need to get this. You need to understand this. You need to, you, need to, you need to understand that in the days prior to my return, this is how it might go. So that's the one main point. Okay? Be ready for persecution. Be ready for persecution. Be ready to suffer for the name of Jesus. And be ready to suffer because of your faithfulness to Jesus. Now, two dire warnings. The first dire warning is about who we will be delivered over to. And it is those who can prosecute and punish us according to the law. 
It is specifically councils, governors, and kings. You can see that right there in verse 9. Now, as far as this warning is concerned, you need only to look to the book of Acts to find its fulfillment. Just listen to a few passages from the book of Acts. Acts 4, 5 through 7. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. So what do we see? We see Peter and John brought before a council, just as Jesus said would happen. Acts 5, 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. Acts 12, 1 through 3, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Then Acts 23, 33, when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. So what do we see in the book of Acts? We see Jesus' disciples being handed over to councils, governors, and kings. The very thing Jesus said would happen before the fall of Jerusalem, it did happen. Even, even flogging in the synagogue happened to the Apostle Paul. Right? He tells us that on five different occasions, he received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Okay, Everything Jesus said here happened. Everything Jesus said here was fulfilled to the letter before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It happened within the generation of his disciples. And yet when we look at church history, what do we see? We see that these things have continued to happen, haven't they? In AD 55, it was the Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna who was handed over to the governing authorities and burned at the stake because he wouldn't renounce his profession of faith in Jesus Christ. 1521, it's Reformation Sunday, should probably talk about Martin Luther. 1521, it was Martin Luther who was handed over at the Deet of Worms and, and who had to stand before the Holy Roman Emperor and who was asked to recant his faith. And he said, I won't recant unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture that I should. In the 1940s, it was the famous Olympian-turned-missionary Eric Liddell, the Chariots of Fire guy, who was beaten and tortured in a Japanese prison camp because he wouldn't stop teaching the gospel. Within the past two years, it was the pastor and the elders of the early reign Covenant Presbyterian Church in China that have been delivered over to the governing authorities and put in prison for their refusal to stop preaching and teaching the gospel. And beloved, those are just a few examples. They're not hard to find. I didn't need to spend a lot of time digging to find those examples. They're not hard to find. There are many examples we could use. This sort of thing continues to happen. Jesus said to his followers long ago, right, they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my name. And 2,000 years later, all we can say is indeed. Indeed, that is correct, Jesus. What you said would happen is exactly what has happened. Now, will this sort of thing happen to us? Sometimes we think we get an exemption, don't we? We live in America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. 
We'll never see a day in which there will be laws which make it illegal to exercise our faith, will we? Will, will there be a time when faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His Word makes us in America lawbreakers? I hope not. We ought not rule out the possibility in light of what Jesus says here in Mark 13. In fact, I think we do well to anticipate it, to expect it. If it doesn't happen, thanks be to God for His mercy. But we should expect it. We shouldn't be surprised if, if it happens. I'm going to continue praying against it. I'm going to continue voting against it and voting to ensure freedom of religion, right, in our land. But, but we ought to expect it. We ought to be ready for it in light of what Jesus says here in Mark 13. Some have already seen a threat to religious freedom in these gathering bans that have been instituted uh, throughout, our, throughout our land. I continue to be thankful for the fact that our governor has really left the church alone. I, I think that's a reason to be thankful. And I continue to be, to be thankful for that, and, and I, I hope that stirs us to be vigilant, right? And that's what we want to be, is vigilant and not, not contributing to the spread of the virus and not having the schools get shut down because it's our fault, right? We don't want that to happen. We'll talk about that at council tomorrow, but, but I'm thankful that the governor's left us alone in places like California. That hasn't happened. Places like California, they've been told you can't gather, you can't sing, you can't worship your God as he's called you to, and uh, that's a problem. And that's why some like John MacArthur and his church have, have defied the authorities, because and honestly, that, that's probably the time to do it. So will there be a day when, we'd, when we're delivered over? I hope not. I pray not. <laughs> but there might be. There might be. We do well to be ready for it. And when and if we are delivered over to the authorities, well, let us be encouraged by the fact that Christ was delivered over for us and for our sins. And therefore, there is, there is some level of privilege in our being delivered over for His name's honor and glory. And actually, the early church found some level of privilege in that. Even Paul said, I, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. He found that a privilege. And hopefully, God forbid, should we ever find ourselves in a similar situation, we too can count it a privilege to suffer for the one who suffered for us. The second dire warning concerns who Christ's followers will be given over by. Right? So first, who they'll be given over to, governing authorities. Now who they'll be given over by, it's their own flesh and blood. You can see that in verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Persecution was one of the most significant problems that the early church uh, had to deal with. We read about that persecution in the book of Acts. We read about it also in the, in the epistles, in the letters of, excuse me, in the letters of Paul and Peter. Uh, and actually, you might remember what Peter wrote to his own readers. Peter wrote, do not be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through. And that is most likely a reference to a time of intense persecution, uh, perhaps even to the terrible persecution that took place under Nero in 64 AD, uh, when Nero was lighting Christians on fire. And some wonder if Peter there is making allusion to that when he's talking about fiery trials. Anyways... We often hear 
uh, about those who stood firm and who remained faithful uh, in the face of this persecution, and we celebrate those people for their courage and their faith, but as you can probably guess, there are also stories of people who caved under the pressure and who renounced their faith under the threat of persecution and who sold out believing friends and family under the threat of persecution. In fact, some scholars think that the book of Hebrews was written to address just this situation. And so what Jesus says here will happen, well, it, it did happen prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There were brothers who betrayed brothers and parents' children and children' parents to save their own necks. And no doubt we, we see modern-day examples, I think, in the Muslim world where a person converts to Christianity and his or her family will either shun them or, or in some instances, hand them over to the local authorities. These things happen to Christ's people, and no doubt we're reminded here that, that even as the gospel does bring us into a new and loving family, the family of God, so does it at times alienate us from our earthly flesh and blood family. This is what Jesus meant when he said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Sometimes that's what happens to a person when he follows Jesus. He's alienated, ostracized, betrayed even by his own family. So one main point, be ready for persecution. Two dire warnings. You will be handed over to those who can prosecute and punish you under the rule of law. You'll be handed over by your own flesh and blood. Finally, three encouraging promises. The first of those three encouraging promises is in verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is one of the difficult verses in Mark 13. I mentioned to you last week there's some difficult parts to this passage. We'd address them as they come. This is one of the difficult parts of this passage. Uh, how do we mesh this statement uh, with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and with the comment in verse 30 that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place? Because you see, this, this statement seems to tell us what must happen before Christ returns at the end of the age. Before Christ returns, it seems the gospel must be preached to all nations. And, and many churches have used this as a rallying cry for missions. And yet if we, if we see there being some level of fulfillment in, in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, well then, you know, the gospel wasn't preached to all nations. I mean, by 70 AD, the gospel wasn't taken to South America. The gospel wasn't in Canada. The gospel wasn't in Australia. The gospel wasn't in Misaki County. So this is, this is one of those verses that makes Mark 13 difficult. And yet, once again, I suggest that we read this verse the same way we're reading the entire chapter, and that Jesus is telling us both what will happen before His coming in judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 AD and before His coming in judgment upon the world at the end of the age. You say, how can we do that? Either the gospel was preached to all nations or it wasn't. Well, there is a sense in the New Testament, 
in which the gospel was proclaimed to all nations or the whole world before 70 AD. Colossians 1.6, Paul writes this, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Does Paul mean the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in Australia? Does he mean the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in Brazil? Does he mean the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in, you know, the United States of America? Of course not. He didn't know about those places. It wasn't until 1492 that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He's speaking about what was in his day the known world, the Roman world, the the Mediterranean world. We see this exact same way of speaking in Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken over the entire world. You say, Pastor Dirk, it says Roman world. No, it doesn't. That's, the editors put that in there. It just says world. Right? They add Roman because that is what Paul is certainly referring to. We, we certainly don't believe that Caesar Augustus issued a decree and like, you know, the Native Americans or the Ojibwe people or whatever, you know, made their way to register. Right? It's, it's, a way of, it's a way of speaking. It's a figure of speech. It's how, it's how their minds worked in the first century. They, they spoke of the whole world regarding the whole known world. And so, so it is with Paul and Colossians. This is why he says the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. And so it would be in the mind of Jesus' disciples. That's how they would have understood it as well. When Jesus says the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And so there is a sense, right? A, kind, of a, kind, of a, kind of a small scale fulfillment of verse 10 before 70 AD, there is a sense in which the gospel went out to the world within a generation of the disciples. Of course, the mandate Jesus sets forth here, it stands. It wasn't absolved in 70 AD. I mean, the gospel must continue to go out to all the world. When a new people group is discovered somewhere around the world in some remote place in Central America or Africa, faithful Christians understand the gospel must reach them. And this example, this pattern, it was set for us by the Apostle Paul, right? He, God told him to go west, and he just kept going west, right? Jerusalem, on to Macedonia, on to Greece, on to Rome. And the last thing we hear about Paul is that he has his sights set on Spain. He's just going further and further west. He's not stopping. He's taking it to the ends of the earth. And then when we look at the book of Revelation... What do we see there? Well, we see people from every nation, tribe, people, and language worshiping the Lamb who was slain. And so, you know, when you read Scripture in light of Scripture, you can sort of put this all together. We see that there's a sense in which the gospel was preached to all nations prior to 70 AD, but we see that the mandate remains and the gospel must be preached to all nations because how else can people from every tribe, language, and nation under heaven be worshiping the Lamb in Revelation, right? And so, so there's even a both and going on here. Now, all of that said, the reason this verse is tucked in the middle of this section in which Jesus calls his followers to be ready for persecution is because according to Jesus here, and this is really his logic, this is why the verse comes up, persecution provides an opportunity for missions. Persecution is really a means by which God causes the gospel to be preached to the nation. At the end of verse 9, look closely at the end of verse 9. After Jesus says that his disciples will be handed over to councils, governors, and kings for his sake, look what he says. He says, to bear witness before them. 
And his point is this. In God's providence, your being handed over is going to allow you to bear witness before some powerful people. In God's providence, your being handed over is going to allow you to, to profess your faith and share the gospel with people you never would have had the opportunity to do that with otherwise. So once again, we, we see this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin, that powerful ruling body in Jerusalem. They share the gospel. It's there in that speech of Peter to the Sanhedrin that he says those famous words, there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. That's in a speech to those to whom he was handed over to. Acts 23 through 26 is really a case study in this. There, the Apostle Paul is standing before Governor Felix, and then Governor Festus, and then finally King Agrippa. And he's bearing witness before them about the truth of Jesus Christ. And King Agrippa even says, Paul, do you really think in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? Paul, and Paul didn't say this, but certainly he would have thought it. Well, I can't, but God can, right? We know that. But that's what Paul was doing. He was bearing witness. Before governors and kings, just as Jesus said his disciples would. And then again, we look at church history. And we see Christ's people doing the same thing throughout church history. We see them bearing witness about Jesus before their captors and before the people to whom they've been handed over. If you want to read a great, like, Reformation Day story, uh, go home this afternoon and just read the story of Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey, and then maybe put a comma Ligonier, because then you get the Ligonier version, which I just, I've read that one, it's not that long, and they do a good job of highlighting the main points. Lady Jane Grey was the nine-day queen of England. This happened about the year 1555. She was a Protestant, and uh, she was, after nine days, dethroned and beheaded by the infamous Bloody Mary. Because Lady Jane Grey refused to convert to Catholicism. So there was kind of this debate over who... Now I'm telling you the story. I told you to go read it for yourself. (laughs) Anyways, the remarkable thing about the story of Lady Jane Grey, she's locked away in the Tower of London. And uh, Bloody Mary sends her henchman in there. Lord John Feckingham is his name, right? One of the sinister characters. I don't know if he was really a bad dude, but he he has that name that just Lord Feckingham. Nobody likes him. Um... And he's trying to get Lady Jane Grey, she's 17 years old, he's trying to get Lady Jane Grey to renounce, you know, her Protestantism and to profess again to be a Catholic. And Lord Feckingham's like a brilliant guy, right? And, and here's this 17-year-old girl just, just going right back at him and giving this wonderful testimony about how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and she's just, she's testifying to the very people whom she was delivered over to. Remarkable story. I told you half of it. Go read it for yourself with your kids or something this afternoon. But, right, Jesus' point here is illustrated in her life. It's in times of suffering, in times of persecution, that God often gives us an opportunity to bear witness to others about the truth of Jesus. You know, we, we, we generally live our lives trying to remain as comfortable as possible. I do the same thing. We try to limit our suffering as much as possible. But it seems from this passage that God would have us live our lives as evangelistically as possible, and therefore, He'll put us in whatever position He needs to put us in to get us to do that. Whether it is on trial, 
before kings and governors or maybe more often in our own lives in a hospital bed before doctors and nurses. God will put us in a position where we can share our faith, where we can tell the truth of Jesus Christ. Second encouraging promise, verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Here Jesus gives his disciples the promise of help in the hour of persecution. He says, the Holy Spirit will give you words to say to your persecutors. The Holy Spirit will enable you to make a defense of your faith and to speak my name boldly and clearly. Once again, we see this all play out in the book of Acts. Before Peter gives his courageous and passionate speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, we're told, not coincidentally, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 4, verse 8. After Stephen gave his powerful speech to the Sanhedrin uh, in Acts 8, I didn't notice the chapter, I think it's Acts 8, it's the one where, you know, he's killed after it. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit will see that our lives are saved, he'll just give us words to say. Those words he gives us might very well cost us our life, as Stephen shows us. But Stephen gives this powerful speech to the Sanhedrin, and in verse 55, we're told right after he's done that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul Paul begins his missionary journeys in Acts 13. He's on the island of Cyprus, and he's called to stand before the proconsul Sergius Paulus, delivered over to councils. And once again, before he speaks, we're told that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then again, church history illustrates the point over and over and over again. We, we read the words of God's people as they stand before councils and governors and kings, the words of Polycarp, the, the words of Luther, the words of Lady Jane Grey, the words of Cory Ten Boom in Nazi Germany. And you can't help but know that it's the Holy Spirit who's speaking through them. How else could they speak so boldly, so clearly, so convincingly in times of such distress? We know how. We know how. Jesus here promises special help to his persecuted people. The book of Acts, church history, leave us with no shortage of examples of our Lord being true to his word. And should the day come when, when, heaven forbid, you or I are delivered over for Jesus' sake, well, then by all means, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say what is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit who lives in you. The third encouraging promise is found in verse 13. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is what Christians are called to do ultimately. We're called to endure. We're called to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. Our job is not to overcome adversity. Our job is not to wiggle our way out of difficult and trying situations. Our job is not even to vindicate ourselves in the eyes of the governing officials or in the eyes of family members. Our job, ever and always, is to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job, ever and always, is to trust in Him alone for salvation and order our lives according to His Word by the power of His Holy Spirit within. That is, that is our job. 
And the promise is that those who do, those who, those who remain faithful to Jesus to the end of their lives, they will be saved. That is, there will be an end to the suffering. There will be an end to the persecution. If you're in that dark place, if you've been handed over, verse 13, you see light at the end of the tunnel. Those who remain faithful to the end will be saved. Pilgrim's Progress is a story uh, about Christian endurance, ultimately, or Christian perseverance, as it's sometimes called. And in the story, it's an allegory of the Christian life. If you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to read it. But in the story, Christian, who is the main character in the story, he journeys from the city of Bestruct, City of Destruction, which is where all of us live by nature, to the celestial city, which represents heaven. And the story is his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And uh, obviously, to get from the city of destruction to the celestial city, you have to go through the cross, right? And that's one of the most beautiful parts of the story when Christian, he comes to the cross on Mount Calvary and this huge burden that he's been carrying around on his back. It's the burden of his sin. He comes to the cross and the straps on that pack, they loosen and the pack falls off his back and it rolls down the hill called Calvary and into the empty sepulcher or sepulcher. I never knew how they actually said that, but you know, the empty tomb. And you know, it's a picture of what happens to each and every one of us when we first come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, there's a scene in the story when Christian is in the interpreter's house, and while he's in the interpreter's house, he sees a fire burning against a wall in a fireplace. And he sees someone standing by this fire, and this person is just casting bucket after bucket after bucket of water on this fire to quench the fire. And yet as he watches this happen, in some remarkable way, the fire burns higher and hotter. And Christian asks the interpreter, what does this mean? And the interpreter answers, the fire is the work of grace wrought within a believer's heart. And the one who casts water on it to extinguish it is the devil. And then the interpreter takes Christian to the backside of the wall and to the backside of of the fireplace to show him why the fire burns higher and hotter rather than going out. And there behind the wall, Christian sees a man with a little little vessel of oil which he continually but secretly pours into the fire. And that oil makes the fire burn higher and hotter. And, And the interpreter says, this man, this is Christ who continually, with the oil of His grace, maintains the work He's already begun in the heart by means of which souls, the souls of His people are preserved. And that scene illustrates for us just a wonderful gospel truth. (laughs) And it's that we endure because Christ continues to pour the oil of His grace on the fire of our faith. He does it it continually. 
He doesn't, he doesn't secretly. We hardly know that it's going on. But behind the wall where no one can see, Christ continues to pour the oil of his grace on the fire of our faith. And that's what causes the fire of our faith to burn higher and hotter. Friends, left to ourselves, we're done for. Left to ourselves, we're toast. Left to ourselves, we don't have a chance. Left to ourselves, the, the, the fire will be extinguished by the devil's water, which is splashed on us again and again and again in the, in the forms of the afflictions of this life. But with Christ's help, with Christ's help, we will endure. With Christ's help, we will press on in faith no matter what. We will endure to the end. We will, we will persevere because he, with the oil of his grace, preserves us. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. It's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. And the point of that verse is this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he is in the business of preserving his people. He's in the business of holding on to the very people whom he's called to endure. You want to know something? When we get to heaven, there's going to be, there's going to be no empty rooms. There's going to be no one who had a reservation and yet for whatever reason did not make it. There's not going to be one drop of Christ's blood which was shed on the cross that will be wasted. There's not going to be one drop that has fallen in vain. No, all those who his blood has redeemed will be saved. They will endure, not because they are so great, but because the one behind the wall with that flask of oil is so great. And he continues feeding the fire of our faith secretly, continually with the oil of his grace. And so in this world, the devil continually casts water upon the fire of our faith. And yet for some reason it doesn't go out. We know why not. We know what enabled Luther to persevere. We know what enabled Corey Tenboom to persevere. We know what enabled those believers in China right now to persevere. I know what's enabling some of you to persevere because there's no shortage of you who you should have given up a long time ago. Like, really, you should have. I know that. But I know you keep going, and it's tough, and it's a challenge. And why do you keep going? Because of the man behind the wall. That's why you keep going. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Beloved, be on your guard. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over. They will be ready, even now, for persecution. For it's just as true today as it was when Luther wrote it 500 years ago. Still our ancient foe, even now, does seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
For these words you spoke to your disciples long ago, words which are still relevant and applicable for us today, we thank you for the warning that you've given us in your word. We thank you for calling us to be ready for persecution and helping us to see that when these things come, there really is nothing strange taking place. We do pray that you would continue to allow us to exercise our faith freely. We do pray that being delivered over to the authorities would not be something that happens in any of our lives or the lives of our children or grandchildren or or even great-grandchildren yet unborn. We continue to commit our our entire lives to you. Even then, we thank you that you stand behind the wall and with the oil of your grace, you continue to keep that fire burning in our hearts, that we might endure, that we might press on no matter what. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing that Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress.
sing, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. Thank you.